You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. In this podcast, I share the presentation that was given by John Corliss at the IISC virtual conference in November of 2020. John was the one who set up the Sustainable Development Division of IISE, which is the Institute for Industrial and Systems Engineers. A lot of people who go to school for industrial engineering or process improvement often look for jobs in manufacturing, but John shares how he found lots of work and lots of applications to improvement in many different sectors, specifically nonprofits, government agencies, and public sector organizations. In his talk, he shares nine lessons learned from his experiences over the years. You can also check out a video with the slides that he's presenting on the YouTube channel, and I'll have a link to the video embedded in the speaker notes for this podcast. Thanks and hope you enjoy. So first starting off, we have John Corliss. He's the Vice President and Chief Engineer with Peer Consultants out of Massachusetts. He's also the one who put together the Sustainable Development Division and so he is the new award winner too. What was the name of the award, John, last night? The Fred C. Crane Distinguished Volunteer or something like that. Yes, so congratulations on that award. And um, with that, I'll hand it over to you to kick off the session. Okay, thank you. Okay, good afternoon. As uh, Brian said, my name is John Corliss. I'm Vice President and uh, Chief Engineer for Peer Consultants. Uh, Peer Consultants is a um, minority woman-owned environmental engineering firm based in Washington, D.C. I'm actually in Massachusetts, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, my career and and, uh, getting involved in sustainability um, and some of the lessons learned that led to that career. So um, what I'm going to do is a, a brief introduction uh, and then some nine lessons learned, and then my thoughts on, on breaking through some of the limiting beliefs. What I kept hearing is industrial engineers do manufacturing and time studies and profits. And when I would say, well, what about corporate policy or public policy or sustainability? I'd be told, well, what do, what do industrial engineers have to do with that? Um, you know, These are comments that I've challenged throughout my career because I believe that an ISE education is ideal for um, developing corporate policy or um, uh, public policy and being involved in sustainability. I had never heard of industrial engineering when I went to college, uh, but based on my childhood experiences, I was looking for a major that would help me improve people's lives. I was an undecided engineering major. I wasn't sure what I was going to major in. I was born in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, and at the turn of the century, it was considered the worsted wool um, capital of the world. Um, this was at the time the largest mill building ever built in the world. It was soon uh, surpassed by another mill building, the Pacific Mills, which um, had buildings stretching over a mile and producing products sold to more than 59 countries. But by the time I was born, worsted wool was no longer fashionable and the water power that caused industrialists to buy land and build the city of Lawrence was no longer 
uh, a prerequisite for activities. And so these huge buildings that I was delivering newspapers in the shadow of um, were either underutilized or vacant. And many of the businesses had moved south or to Asia. And several generations of my family had been very involved in the development of Lawrence um, as architects, as builders. Uh, my father was a very respected political activist, so I became uh, acquainted with mayors and congressmen, senators, governors, and several presidential candidates. Um, so I went to college with my favorite subjects being both science and history, and I considered political science or pre-law, um, but I really wanted to go into engineering because I thought that it would give me the tools to deal with the urban issues that I grew up with. Um, when I was going through all of the materials, one of the things that I noticed was that the school I was at had a uh, industrial and systems engineering program that had a bachelor of economic and e of engineering and economic systems. And that really struck my interest. And one of the first courses they recommended was operations research. And I took uh, operations research uh, in the very introduction of the book um, by Hiller and Lieberman. Um, it talked about um, how operations research, and I sort of assumed uh, industrial engineering, combined history and its World War II applications, problem solvings, multidisciplinary teams, and how to deal with public sector issues like financial institutions, government agencies. This was an aha moment for me and, and really set the roadmap for my uh, academic career where I ended up getting a bachelor's in urban systems engineering, and then a master's in industrial engineering and a master's in public policy, and then for my professional career as well. I ended up doing work for like the city of Detroit, um, productivity improvement office, for um, the US Department of Energy, I ended up going back to my hometown and, and leading the renovation of the canal district. I wanted to get people to come into the downtown and I created a Labor Day Heritage Festival celebrating the labor history and then got hired to create a community foundation. I did work for Emerson College on process improvement and ended up um, becoming director of financial aid for a while. Um, then I went on to the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority where I was head of wastewater planning and came up with some award-winning uh, approaches. Then I had the best view from my office ever when I was uh, leading a project in the British Virgin Islands. I also did some work developing a strategic plan for the West Africa Water Initiative, which was a coalition of over a dozen philanthropic and non-governmental organizations trying to deal with waterborne illnesses in the poorest parts of West Africa. I also led a, a conference of UNICEF country leaders in Senegal, um, led recovery planning in New Orleans and, three other, and two other parishes after Katrina and Rita, have led the development of uh, solar systems on 19 municipal buildings in Washington, DC. And as I said, right now I am chief engineer of peer consultants. Now, for some people, this may seem like a whole mishmash of things, uh, but to me, it was all about public sector problems and how do you address them 
And the tools of industrial engineering allowed me to be successful, even though I didn't know anything about energy. I didn't know anything about water, wastewater. I didn't know anything about recovery planning, but I was able to quickly learn and get into those. So I want to just touch on some of the lessons learned, especially early in my career that allowed me to do these things. First of all was that when I was um, in that Hiller and Lieberman book, one of the things it said right off the bat is one problem is a tendency for many components of an organization to grow relatively autonomous empires. What, this, what is best for one component is frequently determined detrimental to another, so they may end up working at cross purposes. And more recently, that was stated in a Harvard Business Review as uh, the efficiency trap. It said, unfortunately, most organizations fall into the same trap. They look at isolated metrics, but fail to see the whole system. They optimize each part of the business separately and fail to consider how they interact. When we see an operation as a set of isolated metrics to optimize, we can lose a sense of context and overall performance, a paradox. Simply explaining that to some of the governmental or, you know, clients that, that it's okay for some of these systems to be suboptimal if they contribute to optimizing the whole system is a great relief for them. Second factor was systems thinking. Um, in, in the book, Urban Dynamics, Jay Forrester tried to set out not a final set of answers to guide urban policymaking, but rather to contribute to an understanding and provide a method to attack the pervasive sense of failure and frustration among men concerned with the management of urban affairs. And I find that often, and that's because, as he points out, a corporation or a city or an economy is a compound complex system. And in many ways, complex systems are counterintuitive. That is, they give indications that suggest corrective action, which is often ineffective and even adverse to the result. So you really have to look at how all of the pieces fit together. And that has helped me a great deal, just that mindset throughout my career. Another thing I hear, especially in business, is we have to be billable. We have to keep everybody busy. Well, in a queuing theory class, one of the things that was pointed out was that the higher you your capacity utilization, simply because things are random, people are going to have to wait for inputs, the longer your queue gets and the longer your customers are going to have to wait and people are going to have to wait, citizens are going to have to wait for you to provide the service. And that violates the most fundamental requirement, which is to provide service when they are needed. So it's okay to have everybody busy two thirds of the time or three quarters of the time. It's actually better. It provides better service. Um, as an intern, I got a job in the mayor's office of productivity improvement in the city of Detroit. First of all, the fact that there was a mayor's office of uh, productivity improvement was quite a revelation and, and very encouraging to me given where I wanted to go in my career. Um, one of the projects that was pointed out really brought home a, a message to me, which was that they did a classic time study of, of DPW crews. And what they discovered was out of the four people in the crew, never was more than three people working. 
So they made the recommendation that we would all make of, well, decrease the crews to three and increase the number of crews, you'll get more work done or eliminate some of these jobs and, and you'll save money. Well, that recommendation was never heeded and they kept going back and reminding people. And finally a manager pulled them aside and said, no, you gotta understand. We're not just in the business of filling potholes. If a constituent who's been having problems down on their luck goes to the city councilor or the mayor, they say, go see some people at DPW, they'll give you a job. And so we're the employer of last resort and there's a policy informal as it may be that we feel that it's better for these people to have a job and a paycheck than a welfare check. It may help them get their lives back together. But at the same time, we also know that they have addiction problems, health problems. And so we have a 25% absentee rate. That's how come we have an extra person on every crew because on average, one of those four people isn't gonna show up for work. So I've always, from that day on, made it a point to find out what is the true purpose of the organization and not assume that I know what it is. Another example from that time was, even if the champion really know, I know what the problem is, you really need to involve the stakeholders. They tried to automate the community development department and they brought in some people who said, we know how to do this. The people were used to using their index cards and their paper system. But three months later, they came back with computer screens and monitors and keyboards and a mini computer in the corner and gave a real quick training. And the people went, we really don't understand this. We don't buy into it, but we'll try it. But just to be safe, we're gonna keep using our paper system. And of course it gets busy and over time, you're relying on the paper system. They never used the computer system fully. And eventually those monitors came from on top of the counter to under the counter and never was used. And when people went back, they even said, well, if you're not using the system, why is the mini computer still on in the corner? And they said, well, nobody ever told us how to turn it off. So you really need to involve the stakeholders and they need to have, have buy-in. And this really helped me like when I was in the BBI and I put in an extensive public participation program. And even though they were skeptical because they said, well, we never have public participation until the end when we tell the people what we're gonna do. Um, they found that this was really worked well and people were very excited about it. And now they do that for many things. Another lesson was we did this whole study where we were asked to collect all of this information on the purchasing department and stuff from all of these different receipts. And at the end of the process, the leader of it was putting together the metrics that they wanted and realized there was one piece of data they hadn't asked us to collect and asked us to go back through these thousands of records and get that one piece of data. My first boss at the Department of Energy had a very different approach where he would sit down with you and map out what it was that the, the final result was supposed to look like and then have you go off and do it. Now, oftentimes we couldn't find the data or it was hard to collect or more expensive, but as IEs, we have the skills to figure out how to modify those metrics, how to come up with something defensible. That's one of the skill sets that we have. Another thing is that system thinking allows me to become an expert. As I said, I, I didn't have any training in energy or in water wastewater or in financial aid or, or in how to produce a folk festival. But 
I was trained in dynamic simulation modeling. And so I quickly came to understand how the system, how the model worked. And suddenly two years after my first job, I was an expert in world oil and I was giving US government conversations with officials from Pemex and people were finding insights in what we were doing. Simply due to an ISC's understanding of how systems work. And throughout my career, I've been able to reinvent myself on the full understanding of systems in general and system dynamics in particular. Another thing was that sustainability is, you know, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring in 1962 was very controversial and it's been credited to what started the modern day environmental movement. But Dana Meadows' limits to growth conversation around sustainability and sustainable development. And so that, you know, despite the harsh criticisms, we're now seeing this today. And it helped me in going to that first job at the Department of Energy because uh, that course I took in dynamic simulation modeling for policy analysis helped me get that job. And that job was for one of the graduate students who wrote the book Limits to Growth. And that really shaped my thinking and made me realize that the skills that are trained in industrial engineering are very similar to the skills trained to people um, as to what sustainability is. And the final lesson learned is to know the key decision maker. When I was giving the, facilitating that conference in Africa, one of the country leaders stood up and explained, you know, I find it very discouraging or found it very discouraging because I would work with the health minister and the health minister understood how water programs and water, waterborne diseases had a decimating effect on children and how we were trying to, to save them, but we never could get buy-in from the government until finally I realized that it was the finance minister who makes the decisions, not the health and safety minister. And from the finance minister's perspective, saying we're going to save the lives of a lot of children simply meant there were going to be more people needing services that he couldn't afford now. If we reframe the whole program as this was a way to create healthy workers who are going to attract industry and tax money, that changed the conversation. And suddenly I got business. Again, going into projects now, I always look for who are the decision makers and how do we frame the project so the good work that we do has an impact. Which brings me to my last point, which is going back to um, what I said at the beginning. Despite the fact that many IAEs say that we really should be focused on micro level and that the IAEs have strayed too far away from the fundamentals of the profession, if you look at industrial engineers, a lot of them are senior managers, and some like Tim Cook are managers of Fortune 500 companies. They're applying these skills, not just to profit, but to policy and how we go about doing things. ISEs only value improving operations for nonprofit corporations is a limiting belief. The power of our education provides us with all the skills to be successful at all levels and in the public sector. And you know, I've heard other disciplines say, we've got the perfect engineering solution if it weren't for people. Well, people are an integral part of the systems we work with. I think the most interesting systems that we work with. And 
you know, we can make lives of the individual workers safer and more productive. We can also model the world. We can create social environmental systems. And we, can, and we were the ones who identified the existential threat of our era of climate change and proposed policies to address that. And this isn't new. John Muir, who was, uh, you know, before the profession was even founded, was listed as working as, as an industrial engineer in sawmills. He went on to become the founder of the National Parks and the Sierra Club. So we've been doing this for a long time. And as ISEs, the tools that we have to create a, create a sustainable world can also create a sustainable career because we have the ability to adapt to changing needs to consistently bring value of an ISE pr perspective to emerging issues. And as an IE, I have been able to make the difference in people's lives that I was seeking back then when I was an undecided engineering major trying to figure out what major to take. Thank you for your time. If you like this topic, please check out Lean Six Sigma for Good, Lessons from the Gemba. Volume one is released and available through Amazon. We will soon have an audible version coming out early 2020, and we're working on volume two as we speak. Volume one has eight chapters written by different authors who share their experiences applying Lean and Six Sigma to not-for-profit organizations. All proceeds from the sales of the book series will go to the nonprofits selected by the authors. Thanks for your support.